How about that for a signature road win for Mike Norvell and the Florida State Seminoles? It is a very good evening to you and how you be with William Haynes here and you there on the other side of the dial at 89.7 FM WVFS Tallahassee. You're listening to Tomahawk Talk, the weekly sports power hour on the voice of Florida State, taking you up all the way until 8 o'clock with new release. We have a great slate in store for you tonight. Obviously talking all things Florida State in their 31-24 overtime win over the Clemson Tigers. Finally, that seven-game losing streak against those darn Tigers has been snapped, and FSU has now won 10 overall, dating back to last season, and they remain in the top five. So somehow making it out of this uh, month of September 4-0 is very, very impressive. Jack Oliaro will have seminal segment at about the midway point. Lots of exciting things in Florida State volleyball and soccer uh, to be uh, attending to. And also at the end, some very good college football not involving Florida State. And of course, with Florida State being a contender finally, all these other games mean a little bit more because perhaps teams that Florida State will be playing in the postseason or things that affect the rankings, everything that you need to know from there, we will keep you posted. But uh, enough of us talking at you. you. We would love for you to talk at us. And you can call the show at 850-644-1837 and uh, speak what's on your mind about Florida State at V89 Sports Twitter and Instagram. Make sure to follow us on socials as well. But I am William Haynes, as always, our co-host of the show, Jackson Bakich. Man, 4-0. That feels really good, doesn't it? I'll tell you what. I'm always excited to cover Florida State Athletics, but it's so much more fun to cover them when they're a winning team. We felt this last year. We, we were blessed enough to be able to, to, to do this program last year. You know, they have a 10-win season, first 10-win season since 2016. But this year's it just feels different. The air in Tallahassee is different. The feeling around this team is something that I haven't seen in a long, long time. So it is just incredible to be here to to, to witness the the seven year streak. I wasn't sure you know, for that for the streak to end. I wasn't sure if you know as a student, as an undergrad, if I'd be able to, to see Florida State finally beat Clemson. Not only beat Clemson, but beat them in Death Valley. So what a win! What a time to, to, to cover Florida State Athletics, and um, I, I can't say enough about it. Yes, a sports fandom tends to do. Sometimes we move the goalpost a little bit, but yes, you tell anybody preseason that the Knolls are 4-0, one of the toughest opening months to a schedule that Florida State probably has ever had. And yes, they didn't look great at times in that ball game Saturday, but two years ago, this team started 0-4. Now they're 4-0 and number 5 in the country, so things have come a long way, and I know I don't have to uh, remind you of that. We also have a great panel lined up tonight, and we will start making her semester debut on this side of the microphone. She's been doing some tremendous work for us on the social media, but great to have her behind the microphone. Amanda Golson, how are you? Doing great. What a time to be alive. What a time to go to Florida State, like Jackson was saying. Yeah, I'm happy to be back in the panelist chair. I've been banished to uh, the phone for the last couple shows, but I love it. I've had a great time uh, doing some stuff on the social media, so give us a follow there if you're not already. But I'm just happy to talk. We've got so much exciting things going on, and I'm just happy to be here. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. And again, at V89 Sports on Twitter and Instagram, it's, it is really cool to see some of the you know, a little 30 seconds here or there from the show and to be to be able to interact with some of the people out there about uh, some of the questions that we pose is a really cool way for us to interact with you and we love to do it. Again, 850-644-1837 and also with us in the studio tonight, 
the incomparable Andrew Cheney. He is a college football whiz. He is locked in from Friday night from uh, Virginia and NC State all the way until early Sunday morning where uh, USC and Arizona State are going at it. He watches it all, and he did some great work covering fall camp. Uh, for Florida State football. So really excited to have you part of the show uh, tonight as well. Yeah, Jackson talked about blessings and seeing that Florida State win. We're so blessed to to have college football this time of year and to be Spectrum Cable customers. They've gotten our (laughs) ESPN back on, which is great to hear. I think of the phrase blessed, never stressed, though, and I can say that was definitely not true this week with Florida State football. Absolutely not. It was uh, it was a coronary. It was uh, the acid reflux, everything on Saturday, maybe of uh, days of old with Florida State in a big-time game, maybe on the ropes a little bit late. I was anxious after the game, William. I was anxious from 10 a.m., really since I woke up. Sorry, Mom and Dad, I woke up a little late that day. But I was anxious at 10 a.m. when I woke up. Until 5 p.m. I I honestly did not feel good. But even after that win, that game, and we'll talk about it, I know, that game had a very similar feeling to the LSU game in 2022 last year. Kind of a weird way to win. You get the job done. It wasn't necessarily the most uh, cathartic, um, but definitely got got your cardio in from that day just watching that game if you're a Florida State fan. It's just shock. Like, I, like cheered at the end obviously but then I was like I didn't say anything for like the next 30 minutes I was like did that just happen you know it was like one of those did that just happen the time slot was strange too there was a lot of belly aching about that game being played at noon because it is such a marquee matchup but ultimately kind of to your point Jackson not just being nervous after the game but before the game I don't think I could have waited until 3 30 definitely don't think I could have waited until 7 30 so get the game at noon get it out of the way and uh, watch the rest of uh, some great ball games being played. So great to have you along for the ride. We're going to talk uh, a lot of things on this show, but of course where we're going to spend the bulk of the show and what people want to hear the most about, and that would be uh, Taylor Swift yesterday in Kansas City to watch Travis Kelsey. Oh, wait, oh, I'm sorry. I had the uh, the ESPN uh, media guide open. Let wait, me... We're going to talk about Deion Sanders, too, <laughs> in Colorado. <laughs> for the next half I don't know how that got in there. I think uh, producer Jack gave me some wrong notes, but I'm bringing the Tomahawk to- talk notes back, and we're going to talk uh, Florida State and Clemson. Sorry to give you the scare there. We are actually a sports program, <laughs> and maybe some people could take some notes maybe some from hockey. that. Maybe some hockey. Though. I don't know about that one. Uh, but anyway, Florida State, 31-24 in Death Valley at noon in overtime. Clemson had won 25 straight ACC home games. They had the home winning streak that was snapped last year to South Carolina, but they hadn't lost a conference game up there in South Carolina since 2016 when Pitt went in in there and uh, won that ball game. So there was a lot of streaks at play. The Obviously, Florida State seven-game losing streak to Clemson. Hadn't beat them since 2014. Hadn't beat them in their house since 2013 when Jameis Winston in the locker room said that they're going to do it big, and and that's basically what Florida State did a couple of days ago as well. They've now won 10 games in a row. They have scored 30 points in all 10 of those games, so a lot of very good momentum right now. And this was interesting to me. It just seems like Florida State doesn't play a ton of overtime games. Their first overtime contest since the opener in 2021 against Notre Dame. (laughs) Their first overtime win since they beat the University of Louisiana Monroe. 45 to 44. And as we as we get into this game, some people care about polls. You know, others don't. Obviously, it doesn't matter right now. So that's why I don't really care about it for if you're a Florida State fan. You know, you're 
not really worried about their playoff chances at the right moment. If they win, that'll take care of everything. What I do care about more is the lack of respect that FSU has received after possibly the most important win of the program's history in maybe the last decade. Yes, Clemson lost to Duke by a lot. However, that was a season opener on the road with a new offensive coordinator. Clemson had two missed field goals and two fumbles on the goal line and an interception. Clemson is a top 10, they have a top 10 roster. They have a top 15 environment in the country, I would argue. Their first loss does not define who they are. Their win-loss record now doesn't define who they are. I know your record says what you are, to quote the old Bill Parcells. But this is different. I bring this up because Florida State's win over Clemson was monumental. Their win over Clemson was a seismic shift in the ACC. Throw out the win streaks, throw out the history. This year's Clemson team, on their own, is a very good team. Their defensive line is stellar. Their offensive, excuse me, their secondary was spectacular against Florida State's receiving core until the very end. Their losses early in the year does not define them. Florida State's win over the Tigers was incredibly impressive for me. Despite their inability to run the ball, despite Jordan Travis's inability to run the ball as well, despite the questionable game plan through the air that they just kept going back to, FSU earned their stripes in Death Valley, giving them the most impressive resume in the country to me so far this season. It's very well said, and I tried to convey sort of that sentiment last week. I know I made some enemies. I picked Clemson to win 27-21. I think they were much better than they were getting respect for. I thought Kid Klubnik was going to have a good season. I think he really uh, unlocked his potential on Saturday against Florida State. I think at one point I had completed 10 passes in a row and would stand in against the Blitz, made some great throws. Clemson wins that game, you put it best. That was a Kid Klubnik legacy game. Oh, for sure. And, and yes, without some of the miscues, they, they probably should have had 24 points against Duke and shoulda, woulda, coulda, but... And, and now the wheels come off the bus for the Tigers at 2-2. At two and two. But, yes, uh, in some ways it really was an upset to go in there where you haven't won in 10 years and win that ball game. It really is, and it is it is sort of a shame that they don't get the credit. But ultimately, just play the schedule in front of you, win some ball games, the respect will come, right? I mean, you talk about Death Valley and the tradition of that stadium and, you know, Florida State coming, going in there, winning in Death Valley – what I picked up from the broadcast, that was a loud stadium. It was loud. For noon, for noon, that was a loud game. I don't know if that was like a producer's choice to have the Nat sound up. So I could barely hear the analysts. I had to like turn my TV up all the way, and it was still loud. Like, I, the communication on Florida State sideline had to have been tampered with due to that. So the fact that they were able to be so successful under those circumstances, it's almost like if – if you can play there, you can play anywhere. It was loud, but it was deafeningly silent there at the end, right. and that's what counts. That's what's so cool to have that natural sound is to see 81,500 just get taken out, that gut punch by Keon Coleman, the jump ball in overtime, and a perfect throw from Jordan Travis uh, to get that job done there at the end. Uh, but an interesting first half as well. It was the first time that Florida State did not score to begin a half, first or second half, all season. They punted on their first drive. It was 3 nothing until really it was a feeding frenzy of touchdowns in the second quarter, four straight touchdown drives between the two squads. Clemson went into the halftime locker room up 17-14. to 
every Clemson drive was at least three minutes, even the ones where they punted and maybe got only one first down. It seemed like, and I always, I do like to go to the combat sports, but the boxing, they were trading blows, they were kind of feeling each other out, and, and then Clemson, it just felt like they were kind of in control early. Where were we at 17-14 at halftime, Florida State having to come out and make a little bit of a comeback there to make it a game? You know, I think Florida State was able to score when they took what the offense gave to them, or the, what the defense gave them, excuse me. They didn't try to throw bombs down the field every single play on the, the touchdown drives. They took the quick, short passes when they needed to, and they were able to run the ball a little bit better. I mean, obviously you're going to score when you're able to run the ball. Um, I'm not sure why they necessarily abandoned the take-what-the-defense-gives-you philosophy throughout the other sections of the game, but when they did that, they were successful. Yes, that is certainly true. But Florida State was trying and trying that first half. They kept grinding out scores, and I just I did not see that working into the second half. And really in the second half, that was not what they did. They went 11 uh, downfield passes total in the game, but it was all downfield, downfield, trying just, just like playing Madden, as we've said, as Coach Norvell has a tendency to do. They kept trying to do that. And it ended up working out this time, but the odds of that working every game, brother, I don't know. I, I will say, when you, when you take a look at the LSU game from earlier this year, the run game was completely not there uh, in the first half against the Tigers of LSU, the Bayou Bengals. But they kept going back to it, and they eventually they found it in the second half. And I think that's what they were trying to do against Clemson. However, they didn't necessarily change any looks in the second half offensively. In the second half against LSU, they went under center in the first drive. They had the two-back look in the, in, in the second half. And they were able to mix up looks, which gave LS, the LSU defense um, some fits. Yeah, they, they, they stayed with the run game in the second half against Clemson, or at least for the third quarter, but they didn't really change anything. And so I think that's probably where they, they found themselves running the ball into the ground, literally. And the defensive line for Clemson, pretty much the strength of their team, we established that last week with our, our call-in guest that works for the paper over there. And I think that hamstrung Florida State a little bit. It's harder to spread them out. They spent most of the game in two tight end sets, sometimes three tight ends if you count Jaheim Bell kind of split out wide. But they were really trying to chip the ends. Uh, Jeremiah Byers at right tackle had a rough game. And so that was something that you had to account for, especially when Jordan Travis throws the ball 37 times, which he hasn't done that much all season through four games. And so it really comes down to Johnny Wilson and Keon Coleman out wide, and you get them in one-on-one, and that's, to me, probably the strength of their team, and they were able to get that done. And that is exactly how they open up half number two. Johnny Wilson right out of the gate, reminiscent of the BC game a couple of weeks ago, play action to start the third quarter, 41 yards, a nice loft in there for Jordan Travis. Went deep a lot, didn't connect on a ton, but that was certainly one of them. They had a fourth and one wiped off the board on an illegal formation. They had a couple of those just not lining up right. You can blame that on the crowd or the environment or whatever. They did have 60 penalty yards in the game, did uh, the Seminoles, and they cashed in on a field goal. Ryan Fitzgerald, still perfect on the season. He has looked very nice. But that was the only score that the Knolls had offensively in the second half. Uh, Four of their six drives resulted in punts. And ultimately, it was that uh, Kalen Deloach uh, strip sack and return for a touchdown for the scoring 
you talk about halftime adjustments, man, Florida State's offense was almost non-existent in half number two. Well, I, I did talk about the offensive adjustments earlier, but on the defensive side of the ball, in terms of halftime, it, it appeared that Florida State brought more pressure. Brennan Sinone uh, put something out on Twitter, or X, whatever you want to call it now, uh, that kind of brought this up with a stat. They went from blitzing 10% of the time to 40% in the second half. And I think that Deloach sack was kind of the microcosm of that applied pressure working. However, the run defense wasn't necessarily much better, but the secondary seemed to be in better spots, perhaps because plays weren't given enough time to develop with the added pressure. And against Boston College, that was a criticism that I had. And Castellanos for Boston College, a lot more mobile than Kate Klubnik. It's a much different situation, but... Castellanos was able to evade the blitz, and they had wide-open crossing routes deep down the field all game. Clemson did connect on a couple of those. But that is, uh, and for every team, you kind of live and you die by the blitz at times, but that has been a, a big uh, cornerstone for Adam Fuller's time as defensive coordinator is when to blitz, blitzing at the right time. You heard the call at the top of the show from Jeff Colhane and the Seminole Sports Network. Adam Fuller sent six on that final play in overtime, and it was that quick slant that Klubnik and the Tigers were going to all game. You took it out. You're able to tip it at the line. And so it didn't really work last week against BC, and you somehow still win. It works better against Clemson. Maybe you ask why didn't they do it more in the first half? Why would you want to let Klubnik get comfortable in half number one? But they made the right calls at the right time in the second half to finish it out. Well, Clemson has absolutely no downfield passing game. There is nothing. These guys don't go deep. It's dump down, screens, RPOs, and Florida State real, still really struggled to stop that offense for large portions of the game. Yeah, Bo Collins had himself a game. I think it was interesting in the second half, Florida State's offense practically was not there, going three and out, four and out every drive. But for the defense to not have as much time to rest on the sideline and kind of turn the intensity up almost after the half, that was interesting to see. Um Whatever was said in that locker room in halftime, maybe Jameis Winston was there giving that speech again. Um, something something flipped. So that was just interesting that I, I noticed. Thankfully, Johnny Wilson wasn't leaking it on Instagram Live for the world to see this time. But it would, you're right, to be a fly on the wall in that halftime locker room, we know that, that Mike Norvell can get pretty pumped up as opposed to his more kind of mellow demeanor that he shows off to the media. $100 that he probably said trust your training at one point, though, during that halftime speech. <laughs> I mean, you spent all these days getting 1% better. I mean, uh-huh. that's, that has to add up to something eventually. When you're scratching and clawing to just get higher to climb. You know, I mean, you'll end up where you end up. Home is where, wherever you are. And we kind of laugh about it, the, you know, a couple of years ago. But And Molly McGrath with a great interview there in the postgame talking to Norvell. And, yeah, Norvell said, you know, that Clemson was the number one team in the ACC. That was the mountain to climb. And it did take a couple of years because you had Clemson at home last year and you didn't play very well, getting blown out midway through the fourth quarter. And to go on the road, I mean, that's the growth even more. Yeah, that interview reminded me of Talladega Nights. You know, he said, you know, he's a winner. Reminded me of, you know, I just wake up, piss excellence. That's what it reminded me of. But if you're not first, you're last. That's right. And Clemson may be last in the ACC this year. We'll see. 0 oh, 2 in conference play to begin the year. I mentioned the Kalen Deloach strip sack and to say that it was a turning point in the game is a grave understatement a couple of plays prior Maffa, the running back broke off a 46 yard run to get deep into Seminoles territory and then like we talked about Adam Fuller dialing up the blitz 
if Florida State doesn't score a defensive touchdown on that play, let's say it's a sack but no fumble. Again, the Noles only three offensive points in the final 30 minutes. Do they win the game if not for that tremendous effort by Kalen DeLoach? Assuming they still get the fumble recovery and don't advance the ball from that fumble, I still think so. I'd, I'd take it even one step further. I'd say that even if Clemson makes the field goal with a minute 45 left, I still think Florida State would, would have been able to send it to overtime. Florida State's last drive in regulation felt to me like controlled aggression. Obviously, their main goal was to win the game on that last drive. You know, you're, you're trying to keep the ball, or excuse me, keep the game from going to overtime if you can help it if you're the road team. Obviously, their main goal was to win the game, but their secondary goal was to not give Clemson the ball back with a chance to win the game in regulation as well. It was a field position drive at the least, and they accomplished their goal. But if they were down three with two minutes left, I think their game plan would have changed how they would have approached that drive. And I still think they would have succeeded, but you know that's a, that's a bunch of what-ifs. It's hard to tell. I feel like Clemson kind of dictated the pace for the first half of the game. Florida State was just along for the ride, didn't really have control in that sense. So it's hard to say. Obviously, that was a turning point. Um, I just, I, I would like to say that Florida State would have pulled it out, but like by the way I was watching it, I just, it would, it would be hard to see that happen. Not a chance <laughs> in Tala hell that Florida State was winning that game without the sack fumble. It was so impactful. It changed the entire tenor of the game, the entire tenor of the crowd. And That was a silencer, that, yeah. Yeah, without that, no way. Yeah, Andrew, I think you and I, we park our cars in the same garage on that one because Clemson was up 24-17. They're driving deep in a, in a Seminoles territory. You know, like Jackson said, if they just tack on a three, it's a 10-point game. The defensive touchdown ties at 24-all. Much different tenor of the game, as you said. I don't care what the math nerds out there say. I'm going to just say this. Momentum does exist. The clowns that say momentum in football isn't real, you need to find a different profession. I'm just going to throw that out there. Momentum because- exists in every sport. Absolutely. It does. From game to game, within a game itself, across a season, it's one of the most important things you can have. And that play swung it uh, bigly in the Seminoles' direction. You can't say Uncle Mo doesn't exist. You may not want him to exist. You may not allow him at family gatherings anymore. But Uncle Mo is very real, and he's got a long rap sheet. (laughs) Clip that one off for the show. Uncle Mo, he is alive and well and uh, gave a big bump to Florida State on Saturday and yeah, talk about kickers, Jonathan White. He was a he was an MBA student living in Charleston, and Dabo Sweeney, I guess, was you know thumbing through his Rolodex. They didn't really like uh, the the kicker that they had. They wanted to give him a week off. I don't know what kicker needs a breather. I think that was an interesting way that he phrased it to the media. Uh, but they bring a guy off the street and a 29 yarder there at near the end of regulation to give them the lead. That is brutal. Yeah, Dabo Sweeney actually said before the game, quote, hope it doesn't come down to a kick. I don't know if my heart can take that, but we'll see. No word from local cardiologists what's going on with Coach Sweeney. Oh, man. And, and, and he did. He's, I also saw it's either going to be great or it's going to be awful, and I don't see there being an in-between. He made, what was it, a 30- or 31-yarder in the first half, and – you know, Sean McDonough and uh, Greg McElroy are ready to crown it and make it the next uh, Disney uh, motion picture. And then he misses the 29-yarder there towards the end of 
the fourth quarter. You would have thought they won the Super Bowl with the way that crowd reacted to that kick. Which, like, I guess rightfully so, because that, I mean, it's a story, but hearing that, especially with, like, being able to hear the crowd so vividly, I was like, did I miss something, like, besides him, like, making the kick? Like, that was just silly to me. White's (laughs) future boss from the job that he had lined up in New York was in attendance, and, uh... Maybe not a good look there, but, uh, you know, kicking a, uh, kickin a man while he's down. No, I'm kidding. I apologize. But. However, White's parents were in the luxury box section, I noticed, on the television broadcast. So I think they had a good time regardless. There may have been a little bit of uh, Kool-Aid enjoyment uh, after the ball game. It was a great football game, maybe one of the best games of the year, certainly early on. So that, that missed kick sent it to overtime. I want to just... Let's talk about this as its separate entity because it was kind of a game in and of itself. First overtime game since 2021. First win in OT for Florida State since 2019. And Florida State got the ball first, which is at the disadvantage, really. You want to go second so you know what you, what you need to score to advance. And they ran that little sweep to, to Jaheim Bell. Didn't really work out. Then they get single coverage with Keon Coleman. And it was great coverage. Really couldn't have been any tighter than it was, but it took a great throw from Travis and a great catch for Keon Coleman. He did it a couple of times in the LSU game. He did it basically for the win. Keon County is uh, is strong and well. It's one of the coolest uh, storylines from this year. And then also on the other side, Clemson, they still have a chance to score a touchdown and keep it going. There was an awful call on third and one to go to the RPO, and Florida State stuffs it to throw uh, on a little smoke screen on the sideline, and then they send the house on fourth and two and tip the quick slant either side. But that was, uh, like I said, that was kind of its own game, its own chess match, and Florida State was able to win that one as well. Yeah, a lot of people have mentioned the fact that the game winner for Florida State came and was uh, caused by two transfers in Jordan Travis and Keon Coleman, but that was the play that I think Florida State fans expected all game. Uh, Keon Coleman winning the, a jump ball in the end zone. It just seemed like they couldn't get down to the red zone. Um, but to your point, William, Garrett Riley's call for Clemson on third and a water bottle was just atrocious. I mean, you have the best running back in the conference, arguably the country. He's top five in the country at least, I would argue, in your backfield, and you throw a bubble screen? Really? I mean, in my opinion, it is logically on par with Pete Carroll's call in the Super Bowl uh, to not run Marshawn Lynch at the goal line. It, it made no sense to me whatsoever. Cade Klubnik, it was an RPO play. He had a choice. The ball could have gone to Shipley. It didn't go to Shipley. I think, I know, we're talking about a 19-year-old here, but you yeah, got to make better decisions, brother, if, I, you're, I forget, if I'm a Clemson fan. I forget who said it. It was on a halftime report for one of the either 3.30 or 8 o'clock games. You don't give that decision to anybody. You have to make that call as an offensive coordinator on your own. You have to tell the guys, hey, we are running the ball here with Will Shipley on third and a water bottle, on third and a Mountain Dew cap. You know, I mean, it's, it is it is logically uh, dumbfounding. That's quite literally your job as an OC. And for that decision to be up to Club Nick is baffling to me as well we've seen this with florida state in the last few years not really this year you can get too cute for your own good that's exactly what clemson did will shipley is the best player in your football team give it to him and just let him Le'Veon bell shuffle his way to get that yard and then you're i think it's first and goal or just outside the 10 and uh but 
you know, sometimes games come down to calls like that. I'm sure uh, the, the Clemson uh, stations are, that's what the game boils down to. There was a lot of other things that went into it. You make that 29-yard kick. I mean, there's a lot of things, but that call for Clemson was tough. But great on Florida State for executing on fourth and two because they had to come through again. The last thing that I want to touch on before we go to Jack for halftime, and, and this is maybe the biggest point of all, talk about a win against all odds. Florida State just 4 of 13 on third down, had 60 penalty yards. Clemson held the ball for 10 more minutes than they did. Their defense was on the field almost the whole game, it felt like. Only had 22 rushing yards. In, there's a couple sacks included, but you run for basically one yard a carry. Benson could do nothing. And as we've touched on extensively, one of the hardest places to play. With all those things being said, that is impossible that you find a way to win that football game. And yet Florida State does. I think that says a lot about what they can do. Yeah, great teams find a way to win. You know, they, they wake up, they piss out. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> there isn't really a whole lot more to say regarding that. I, I think, however, the blueprint is out. And I think also this is the blueprint really to be any superior team is to keep it close. Um, by controlling time of possession and getting third down stops. So that, that has really been the blueprint to beat anybody for the last 150 years or since college football or uh, since down and distance was created. But despite the winning culture at Clemson, I, I, really do think, I truly do think you can argue that the program, the team, Kate Klubnick, Will Shipley, whoever it is, should leave that game with their head held high because they put up a great effort. They pretty much executed their game plan i think florida state was just better that's what happens when you bring in a kicker from charleston i guess <laughs> now they know not to make that mistake again but i mean that was that's an interesting choice obviously that's a once in a lifetime scenario i would hope that doesn't happen again if i was a clemson fan but yeah jackson i think you i mean there's not much clemson fans should be worried about or sad about coming out of that game obviously it sucks to lose in your home field to a team that you've beat seven years in a row and you know um yeah but if you're a Clemson fan you're then again you are a Clemson fan and the standard is high so I think that's something else to keep in mind and it's a historic program for a reason that happens to all of us I think but if you're a Clemson fan you've got a lake you've got a lot of hills very pretty place you know, maybe you don't have to watch the football team every week. And the best news of all is if you're listening to this show, you're not a Clemson fan, so you're in good shape. So we're about at the midway point. Again, we're going to take you up until 8 o'clock. What we want to do now is check in with our producer of the show, Jack Oliaro. He'll tell you all about other things going on in Florida State Athletics. So Jack Oliaro, take it away with Seminole's segment. Thank you, William. Uh, referenced earlier in the show, I'm actually Dion's second biggest fan, only to you, William. Uh, you have the posters across your house, which look really nice, but back to business here. I'm Jack Liar, producer of Tomahawk Talk, and ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time for the best few minutes of your week. It's the mother stinking seminal segment, relaying the latest and greatest in all of Florida State's athletics, coming somewhere around the middle of the show to catch you up to speed on what you may have missed. We'll start out in Syracuse, New York, where the third-ranked Seminoles were fresh off their opening conference win at eighth-ranked Clemson, where they fired out four unanswered goals in a triumphant 4-2 win. However, the team found themselves down early after a defensive miscue in the back allowed Liesel Odin an easy tap-in to put the orange on the board inside just three minutes. Their lead didn't last more than five minutes because Beata Olsen beat her defender to the ball and faded her shot past the keeper for the equalizing goal. Syracuse was once again able to create something out of nothing as a cross was deflected off FSU defender Heather Gilchrist and went in as an own goal just before halftime. 
The Knolls dominated play with 32 total shots compared to their opponent's two, but were unable to get past the Orange goalkeeper, Shea Vanderbosch, who saved an incredible 17 shots on the night. The Knolls grinded along and were able to tie it, tie it even with a Syracuse own goal, but unable to find that winning strike until FSU's leading goal scorer, Oni Echigini, took matters into her own feet and unleashed an unstoppable shot from the top of the box to steal the win and keep the Knolls undefeated going into Chapel Hill. The Knolls won. They survived the Orange Test and looked ahead to the clash of heavyweights as two of the best programs in the sport faced off in what's often circled as the best game of the year when they play. It's FSU-UNC. It's number one versus number three, all to play for after their three tense meetings last year. The game began with the Tar Heels creating dangerous chances, but against the run of play, Leilani Nesbeth drove the length of the pitch, delivered an inch-perfect through ball to Jordan Dudley, who weaved her way to the game's first goal just after 15 minutes. Not even a minute after North Carolina missed a penalty shot, they broke through and broke even just before halftime to leave the team squared after 45. At the freshman sensation, Jordan Dudley struck again as she soared above all on a seminal quarter kick and sent her header into the back of the net to make it a brace for herself and resurrected the lead. But the best can respond even when they're on the ropes, and UNC stormed back to draw level two piece before taking the lead with just five minutes to go. And you know what? Big moments call for anybody and everybody, including the most unlikely of players. Freshman Mimi Van Zanten answered the call on the last kick of the game as Taylor Huff's corner was parried by the UNC keeper and right into Van Zanten's path. She made no mistake of the situation, buried the goal with just two seconds left, stunning the UNC faithful robbing the nation's best of a victory and creating one of the most memorable moments in recent history of FSU athletics. They now come home after three straight road games and face their rivals down south in the Miami Hurricanes Friday night under the lights at 7 p.m. streaming on ACC Network Extra. The Florida State volleyball team was able to rattle off a terrific week of their own after three losses the week prior. They handled business at home against North Florida for their first win at Tully this season before hitting the road to begin conference play. The Knolls survived a thriller against Virginia Tech taking the win in five sets in a full team effort where Corey Lewis led the team with 15 kills. Then continued on to Winston-Salem to face Wake Forest, where they blew the Deacons out of the water in a three-set sweep. ACC Co-Defensive Player of the Week, Kiara Roby, asserted herself as a huge presence on the net with 12 blocks against the Hokies and led the team in kills and blocks against Wake. The team will be able to come home and take on North Carolina and Duke this weekend, facing the Tar Heels Friday at 6.30, streaming on ACC Network Extra, before a Sunday 2 p.m. meeting, with the Blue Devils on ACC Network. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of Seminal Segment. William, we are clear for liftoff. Thank you, Jack. Appreciate you. Great to hear about other things going on. Obviously, we cover the football extensively, but there's some other great things going on. That Brian Penske-Anson-Dorrance rivalry is flourishing. It's alive and well to get the draw there at the gun. Very exciting and uh, I'm sure they'll face the Tar Heels at least a couple of more times before the season is uh, all said and done. Now that we're back here in the studio, uh, William Jackson, Amanda, and Andrew, you can call us up, 850-644-1837, about 20 minutes. Yes, about 20 minutes left of the show until new release at 8 o'clock. We've been talking about Florida State's win over Clemson. Now that we're four games into the year, and Florida State, number five in the country. They've done well to win the games that they have, but it appears that there is some glaring flaws, and I want to talk about that. And I'll start with the defense. And four games is a relatively low sample size, but they've played a couple of great teams, and they've played a couple of bad teams, and more or less that's basically what everybody has done in the first month of the season. 
4-0, the Knolls have given up 22.5 points per game, which is 56th best in the country. They're 402 yards allowed per game, 97th best in the country. Can FSU sustain winning with this type of performance? Obviously, their 10-game win streak, they've scored 30 points or more in each of those. That seems like a necessity to win a ball game. you got to put up 30 on the scoreboard. Well, I think you have to factor in, I know you mentioned it, but you have to factor in who they've played. They've played LSU in a quote-unquote neutral site, and they've played Clemson on the road. I mean, those are two solid offenses at the least. Yes, the outlier is Boston College, but I think the defensive stats, I think a little buff over time. But, William, I think when you read between the lines of you know, being 56 in points per game while simultaneously being 97th in yards, what does that tell you? That means they're very good in the red zone. Ben, don't break. That's that's exactly right. So, you know, if you're gonna if you're going if you're going to want to beat Florida State, you're gonna have to score touchdowns because Florida State's offense is pretty solid and their 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 red zone defense is I'd say above average. So, if you want to beat Florida State, you have to score touchdowns because they will also score touchdowns. Football is a two, two-way two sport. You have to be good on both ends. And I'm afraid that, like you said, this is a small sample size, but I'm afraid that if this pattern of Florida State's defense is continued, there's going to be a game where it's going to be exposed and it's going to come back to bite Florida State. It could snowball. That is very true. So I just wonder... Hmm. I, I just wonder if this game changed something and you know that whole second half kind of figured something out or if this will continue I hope not but it is interesting to look at from this point of view the problem of Florida State I think is more consistency it would seem when the defense starts making plays the offense forgets and goes into some sort of bizarro Madden world and when the offense is exploding and very effective then the defense just starts looking around like their heads are on screws, crossing routes here and there, no idea where the ball is. So there's got to be more of a synergy between offense and defense. Great word. They need to give each other breaks. I think that's a thing, is making sure that both sides of the ball are having ample time to rest when they are off the field. And like you said, it just has not been consistent. And for that to line up, you, I mean, that's how Florida State is going to start being more consistent and win football games. And so far, Adam Fuller's strategy to uh, – he's trying to wallpaper over the stains with the blitzes, and that that worked well on Saturday against Clemson. Sometimes you're going to get beat by it. I will also say they put some things on tape that aren't great, the crossing routes. Run that a lot. If you're playing Florida State, run some crossing routes. I will also say the middle of this defense is softer than maybe people think. Went back and watched the game in, in its entirety earlier today. Fabian Lovett getting pushed off the ball. Uh, Tatum Bethune was out for a little bit in the second half, and when he's not in the game, that is a scary sight. Omar Graham uh, played in his stead, and you know they've they've rotated in Josh Farmer, Malcolm Ray, some of these younger guys. They've got a great pass rush. That's what Jared Verse is known for. The run defense not as great, so those things are a concern. And I think the loss of Akeem Dent was very evident too, especially on those crossing routes as well. Yeah, the secondary, you would you would probably say perhaps the worst position group on the team. And Central Cypress did not have his best game either. Bo Collins had a pretty solid day. So you're just going to need better play from him. Two weeks in a row for Cypress. Maybe time to start considering taking him off of Revis Island. I don't know that that's the strategy. I know 
you got to play good man-to-man coverage on the outside to execute what he wants to do. And it worked against LSU, but right. it probably won't work against everybody. Well, I I have called him Cypress Gardens after the legendary Winter Haven theme park, and I have to say it is kind of like Cypress Gardens because it seems like receivers just grow long hands and great catching ability when they're covered by this guy in single coverage. So the defense does have its work cut out for them. The schedule softens up a little bit, and getting some games at home will help. Now on the offensive side of the ball, the biggest story nationally and just around this program in general, Jordan Travis for Heisman. Florida State, like Seminoles.com, made a website, Travis for Heisman or J-Trav, whatever. Again, it's early in the season, but the number's not looking as great. He's the 31st best quarterback in the country in passing efficiency. He's only completed about 62% of his passes. Like Michael Penix has almost a 15% better uh, completion percentage. And he's got a little bit over 1,000 passing yards through four games, which is 36th best. He's only run for 94 yards. And a lot of that, I will say, is based on his health. He also just seems like he's not as interested in running as he was last year, and I think that's what made him as great as he was. And maybe he's got a bum left shoulder now, and there's some things going on. He's playing well enough. Like I said, 37 throws. He had to throw to win this game. Didn't make them all, but he made them when they counted. He's going to win ball games. I am starting to drift away from him being in Heisman candidacy, but if this team continues to win, that will help, obviously. I mean, I would agree with you right now as well in terms of the current moment. Yeah, he's not really in the race, but if the Nulls keep winning and others begin to fall in terms of wins and losses, then the Heisman race just naturally begins to slim. I would find it hard to believe that a one-loss or an undefeated Jordan Travis wouldn't get an invite to New York. Yeah, talking about Jordan Travis's Heisman odds, it's kind of seems, kind of feels like, because Heismaning, it, it is a campaign almost. It kind of feels like talking about another Tallahassee resident's efforts at earning a big award. Not, seems like a lot of things are going to have to change in the next couple months for something like that to happen. It's also, you think, like you just mentioned, Florida State's schedule begins to soften up. Do people take that into account? Oh, he's won games, but against nobodies. Like, yeah, his record's good, but is the strength of the schedule there? And through four games, Florida State's win, uh, neutral site versus LSU and at Clemson, the best pair of wins that exist in college football right now. And Heisman or not, Travis did get a pretty cool milestone a couple of days ago. 82 career touchdowns all-purpose. He does have a receiving touchdown uh, and obviously a, a lot of rushing ones. But 82 career touchdowns at Florida State is a program best. He passed Chris Winkie, who had the Heisman Trophy in 2000. So he's going to be one of the program's best, if nothing else. And I will say uh, it is it is really special to see a quarterback trying to battle through some stuff because it is clear that the health is, is basically bringing him down. But he was absolutely nails on Saturday, and he's been great all year. I think, depend, like you said, dependent on his health, he's been hesitant to run the ball, which is where he shines. We saw it last year. I think it all it takes is a couple big run plays that he had options for in previous games but was maybe hesitant to take them due to his health and due to you know conserving his energy, whatever it may be. I think you take little run plays like that, that can sort of be an outlier in this Heisman campaign that maybe other quarterbacks aren't making. But he, like you said, I mean, he's just been a little hesitant on that aspect. But I think, I mean, hopefully his health 
starts to shapen up and he gets more comfortable in the pocket. And I mean, who knows? So Florida State gets the bye week. It's always strange to get a September bye, but it is uh, very well warranted with the schedule. I would argue Virginia Tech is the the next opponent. You get them at home. Virginia Tech has looked awful. Maybe the worst team in the ACC. Start Tate Rodemaker at quarterback against VT. Give J. Trav two consecutive weeks off. Let that shoulder get right because if you're making the run that you think you're going to make, you've got about 10 games left. And do you want him to keep playing through that for that many games? That's going to present some problems, especially if he can't help your run game because the run game is really struggling without his ability uh, to carry the football. I don't know if they will do it. I think we've seen that this year. Like, Maurice Smith probably got a quasi-maybe-rest day against BC last week because he played against Clemson. We've seen Norvell and this team do that, maybe not at the quarterback position, and if the Heisman thing is in play, that is another factor. But I would say, all things being said, it's not worth it to risk it and just let him rest because you don't need him to beat Virginia Tech. You shouldn't. Yeah, I would I would agree in terms of it's probably the right move. At the same time, there's a lot of things to to factor in. It kind of reminds me of whether you know a, a a coach should leave in a pitcher while he's throwing a no hitter or a perfect game, and you're only up like one nothing. Uncle you know? Mo, you want to keep his momentum going for this season? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know it's it's a very unique situation. I, I don't think they're thinking about parents' family weekend or whatever as well, but. You know, people, people and their families are coming up to see Jordan Travis, you know, throw the inflated pigskin around. So, Especially his family. Yeah, they exactly. are at yeah. everything. Though. So, you know, <laughs> it's, like it's, a, it's a unique situation. I would agree with you in terms that it's probably the right move, especially, you know, there's the old Mickey Andrews quote, you know, we, we prepare next year's team this year. I think Tate Rodemaker starting that game. But, you know, you have to remember, you have to remember he's in contention for a Heisman. You have to remember... Uh, a multitude of different factors so who knows I, I don't think it's a horrible idea I think if you say that to some people they would consider it a very hot take but in this room it seems to be not lukewarm in a bad way but in terms of it's not I don't think it's a horrible hot take national tv game give him his shot from Valdosta Georgia to the world even if you do start Jordan Travis against Virginia Tech, he's not going to play more than a half, I don't think. I think it would play out a lot like the Southern Miss game because Virginia Tech, like I said, they've been awful, and they haven't played really a lot of tough teams, but they've just been getting blown out. And I will say this as well to kind of put a cap on it. If you don't have confidence in Tate Rodemaker to beat Virginia Tech, you've got bigger problems on your hands because is he not most likely going to be the starter next year? And Brock Glenn is injured. He's out for the rest of the year. A.J. Duffy, the only other QB on the roster, was on the scout team to begin the year, which tells you what the Seminoles think of his ability to play under center. So why don't you just figure out this Rodemaker thing now, see what you got. He won you a game at Louisville last year, and I just think for the, the greater good, that would be the way to go. We've talked about a couple of, of negatives, and I do want to – uh, give some honey with the vinegar. Florida State, their weapons in the passing game, no matter what else is going on, if they're giving up big runs in their defense and the crossing routes and the offensive line isn't playing well, they can't get the run game. Johnny Wilson, Keon Coleman, Jaheim Bell, all those guys, they're going to win you some football games just by them alone. Johnny Wilson has had a couple of good weeks in a row. Coleman adds another two touchdowns to his tally. 
he is impossible to defend in the jump ball. Like I said, that, that catch in overtime could not have defended it any better than you did, and he still caught it. That, that has to make you feel good. In college football, having good weapons on the outside is one of the most valuable things you can have in addition to a Heisman-level quarterback. Yeah, I mean, the drops are still concerning. I'm going to give a little vinegar with your honey. Mm. Um, but they keep finding ways to win, and their great plays outshine their bad ones. You think, too, if teams start doubling these guys on the outside, maybe that opens up the run game. I mean, I've waited for it to happen, and it has yet to occur but yeah I mean I think this was a good confidence booster for Johnny Wilson I feel like we've been harping on him for the past couple of shows Uh, I feel like he needed these past two weeks and to to go into a game like Virginia Tech where he could be a big contributor with having possibly Tate Rodemaker under center who knows I mean it's it's hard not to like those guys through everything that was Johnny Wilson's coming out party last year (laughs) against Louisville the the rapport with Rodemaker I think he could have a a big game if that's the way things go. Yeah, and when you're a backup quarterback coming into a ball game like Rodemaker was last year, and wasn't Florida State down when he came in the game? <laughs> if I have a six seven receiver and I'm coming in cold into a ball game, just give, to feed him the ball. And when you have a guy like that that's a fire starter, very, very valuable asset to have. And I think Florida State continuing to keep confidence in him. Jordan Travis, uh, he is always going to go to Wilson when he needs a big play, and, and Wilson knows that. And he's been able to overcome some struggles in the first couple of games in this season and has come on awfully nicely here. He's came back for one more year to try and bump that draft stock. We'll see how uh, the rest of the season goes. We've got a few minutes left here on the program, and there was uh, at least one very interesting game that happened on Saturday that I want to discuss Ohio State and Notre Dame is a great kind of old-school feel, two very uh, traditional programs going at it at a great venue in South Bend. 17-14 to 14 was the final score, and it came down to a rushing touchdown on the very last play. And there was not much to speak of in the first half. To begin the third quarter, Notre Dame was down 10 nothing. Then back-to-back touchdown drives of six and a half minutes or longer. They were sustaining drives in the first half as well. Not big plays, but they run the ball well. And, and Sam Hartman takes care of the football. They had this game in hand. They had Ohio State down to a third and 19 with 15 seconds left, and they gave up a 21-yard pass to one of the Buckeyes' great, tremendous receivers. And then when it came down to Ohio State at the one-yard line, the final two plays of the game, one was a throw, and then the one to win it was a, a rush. Ten players on the field for Notre Dame. Marcus Freeman. For the last two plays, not just the last one, but the last two. Right. Marcus Freeman hired as that, that defensive mind. Probably the first time ever as a Notre Dame fan or anybody that you could say the Notre Dame defense would have been better with Rudy on the football field. Yeah, it was a very strange ending to watch, especially when they gave up that third and 19. And, I, you know, the, the uh, cojones, I think I can say that, to, to, to run – the onions. The, the onions to run the ball with three seconds left on the final play from Ryan Day I thought was uh, a great call. Obviously, you know, if Notre Dame has one more guy on that left side, maybe things turn out differently. But this game had a game-of-the-century feel. Obviously, it wasn't. You know, game-of-the-centuries are either one versus two or one versus three. But this game was a very old-school type of feel in Notre Dame Stadium against Ohio State primetime game under the lights you know they're, they're wearing it was the green game for the Irish it, it reminded me of uh, 
the Bush push game, kind of. It comes down to that final rushing play there at the end. And we'll, we'll get into Notre Dame and the rest of their season, but what a game. Yep. And Ryan Day, boy, he was feeling it after that one. If you haven't heard, watch up the post-game interview. Very, a lot of passion there. I was told it's Ohio, Ohio versus the world. Versus right. the world. Whatever, it's always been. Whatever that means. <laughs> so, for Ohio State, they really didn't look great to start the year. They were in a dogfight with Indiana to begin the season. And Cal McCord, their new quarterback, does this win on the road? I mean, Notre Dame's still, in my eyes, a top-10 team. I think a lot of people would agree with that. Does this legitimize McCord and the Buckeyes for you? They don't have a lot left on the schedule. They have a home game versus Penn State. That's really the only challenge until the game in Ann Arbor against Michigan to finish out. Well, with the style of football they seem to be playing, which was very run-oriented, very defensive-oriented, it's not built to create margin. They're going to play a good Maryland team in two weeks. They're going to Purdue the week after that. They're going to Wisconsin. They're going to Rutgers. I mean, when when it doesn't sound like Ohio State could lose those games, but when you're playing a low-margin, fair style of football, anything can happen. Especially See, Purdue. They've been the giant killers, it seems like, of, of the last 10 years in the Big Ten. They, they beat Virginia Tech. Years. Yeah. When you throw for 240 yards and no touchdowns, that's, that's just a crazy stat to look at in that regard. And for Notre Dame, feels like the some of the air comes out of the tires for them, right? You had Ohio State down to that third and 19 in your house. You have to finish that one out. And if Notre Dame won, I'm sure Fox would have sidelined some of the coach prime business and would have been running some, some Notre Dame propaganda. It blew a chance for a marquee win at home. The schedule is a little hairy. They go to Duke next week for the, the game day game and the, the Chris and Kirk game. They have USC at home, and they have to go to Clemson. It's a tough schedule, obviously with no conference title game in particular. This is the only loss that they can afford. Uh, what is the outlook for the Irish? Well, it's pretty much the same as always. Went out and you're in. Really? We've, we've seen we've seen Notre Dame in the past get in with one loss. And I think Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan, or yeah, I, I think they all kind of round robin each other. I think there's got a good possibility that they all go one and one against each other. So I, I think Notre Dame, I think they would get in if they went out. Will they win out? I don't think so. At Duke, at Clemson versus USC, that's a pretty tough schedule. So I do think, though, this team feels a little different in terms of the Notre Dame teams of the past, in terms of, you know, they'll, they'll be able to get to the playoff or get to the big game and, and kind of fumble. I think this is a team with Sam Hartman that has the ability to, uh, to make it to the playoffs, that has ability to to I wouldn't say win the whole thing, but I wouldn't be surprised if they are within the top six at the end of the year. Well, you think some of the previous years under Brian Kelly, when they got to the big games, they were embarrassed. That's been changed. Now they have the opportunity to lose the game because they only had ten guys on the field. So that does show some development of the program. It's going to be really interesting to see Florida State getting the bye this Saturday, so a chance to do a little advanced scouting. Again, Duke is hosting Notre Dame, and then also Syracuse hosting Clemson. That game could get very weird, and Syracuse would move to 5-0 and and would probably enter the polls. So the remaining schedule for Florida State looks a little bit trickier than we thought before the season, but you got through, obviously, the most difficult part, and things are looking good. We'll be back next Monday to preview uh, the Virginia Tech contest as well as everything else that's going on in the world of college football. It's been great talking with you the last hour. New release coming up next. 
For myself, William Haynes, co-host Jackson Bakich, our panelists Amanda Golson and Andrew Cheney, Jack Oliaro, uh, and doing seminal segment as well. Signing off, saying so long. You're listening to WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State.